the Battle of Marathon, you've probably heard of it, but what do we know about it exactly? Why did it happen? How did it play out? And how was Marathon used in later periods? I'm joined by Dr. Sonia Nevin, whose book, The Idea of Marathon, covers all of this and much more, including possibly the best artistic canine cameo you've ever heard about. Join us as we chat all things Marathon on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I had the fortune to be joined by a special guest expert to talk about Marathon. Dr. Sonia Nevin is an affiliated lecturer at the University of Cambridge, where she lives in the UK, and she is an assistant professor at the University of Warsaw. Prior to that, she was a doctoral fellow at the University College Dublin, then a visiting lecturer at the University of Roehampton and Birkbeck College, part of the University of London. Dr. Nevin is a specialist in religious and moral values in ancient Greek warfare and in ancient Greek historiography, the writing of history. She makes up half of the Panoply Vase animation project, making educational animations from real ancient artefacts. I'll be sticking up a few notes and links for this episode on ancientblogger.com, as I often do with my podcast episodes. These notes will include a discount code for the paperback or ebook version. It's 20% off if you're buying in the UK or the US. You need to go to either the UK or US Bloomsbury website, which is the publisher, and enter Marathon 22 for the UK or Marathon 22 US for the US. But don't worry if you haven't got a pen, it'll all be on the episode's notes on hnblogger.com, along with Dr. Nevin's Twitter and a link to an amazing website we chat about. I should also mention that this isn't a paid promotion. I'm pretty sure I'll always be a hobbyist podcaster. As ever, if you can rate or review, it'll be highly appreciated. But more importantly, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was great fun talking with Dr. Nevin. Excuse the historically inaccurate pun, but for an episode on Marathon, we covered a lot of ground. On then with the episode, and thanks for listening. Hello, Dr. Nevin, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Just before we get started, people who've listened to episodes where I've got guests on before will probably expect this question. I'm really interested what gets people into ancient history. And I know that my audience has a, a range of experiences, how they became interested in ancient history, classics, that sort of thing. What was it that initially grabbed your attention and how did that develop? Well, I was really interested in all sorts of military history from the time I was really young. And I think I really liked all of the equipment and the adventures that are part of all of that. And then when I was still quite young, the biggest artistic influence on me was Kenneth Branagh's production of Shakespeare's Henry V. And I really loved the look of it. And I was really fascinated by the ethical questions that are raised in it. Uh, But that's still, of course, Northern European history. And then when I started secondary school... I read David Gemmell's historical fantasy, Lion of Macedon. And I read that over and over again. And I I just loved it. And it's got all these battles. It's got personal struggles. It has very cool helmets and spears all over the place. (laughs) More ethical questions. Uh, Then I was lucky to uh, be able to study ancient culture at school and inspired essentially by the Lion of Macedon and more historical novels. 
I, I went to university thinking that I might like to become a historical novel writer. Um, and that oh. has not happened as, it, as it, uh, yet, you might say. Uh, <laughs> but I got swept along with the subject. And then I began pursuing uh, a PhD on religion and morality in Greek warfare. And eventually, partway through it, I realized that many of the questions that are raised in Henry V are questions that I was essentially researching in relation to ancient Greek culture. And subconsciously, I had somehow brought those two worlds together. What was that book in? The Lion of Macedon? I've not heard Lion of Macedon. It's good fun. Basically, um, David Gemmell was a fantasy writer. He wrote a lot about kind of fantasy Northern European environments, but then he turned to fantasy ancient Greek environments. And Lion of Macedon from, I think, 91, looked at the life of one of Philip II's generals, Parmenion, um, but he oh, reimagined yeah. it in a fantasy world that he had been a Spartan, grew up in Sparta um, and was, okay. um, left and went to Macedon. And and then you have all these kind of fantasy elements about gods and fate and all of this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But with the background of Sparta's decline and the rise of Macedon. It's good fun. Really good stuff. Great battles. Something you have done and actually something that I first encountered yourself through was the Panoply Vars animation project, which sounds exactly what it is. And if you're listening to this and you've got any amount of time over the next two or three days, and let's face it, we all do, and you're thinking, you know, you're at work or you're on your phone, you're thinking, I mind checking something out, find it, search for it. It's really, really fascinating. Could you briefly just describe exactly what it is and what it does? Yes, the Panoply Vars animation project as the name suggests, we take ancient artefacts, which often have these beautiful decorations, figurative images of people or animals, and then we use that actual ancient artefact we, to create animations, particularly educational animations. And they tend to be very short, but they give you a whole different sense of the artefact. You can see an example of what will what could have happened afterwards from that scene or what could have happened before it and what led up to it. So you're taking a static image and then imagining a move, moving version of it. Uh, I was partway through my PhD and we really began it as a bit of fun. Uh, and I work on it with my husband, Steve Simons. Once we'd begun making them, we saw that their potential for helping people enjoy the ancient world, understand the ancient world, it was really greater than we had initially thought. And that's when we began taking it a lot more seriously, putting more thought and more work into it. And it's really grown from there. And it's, yeah, that's something I'm really, I'm really proud of. It's really good work and definitely worth a look. My favourite, by the way, if you're looking through the animations, is the runners. And that's simply because you've got this horse who's just sort of idling away above. And it's, it's just beautifully done. I think there's a lot of value to it. And you also have some good merchandise on there. I've got a couple of your T-shirts and they're not just one of my favourite T-shirts because they still fit me. I did buy them a few years ago. Uh, they still look pretty good. Thanks again for that because I think it that sort of outreach does make a difference to people. It helps get them interested in a different way. And also sometimes just given that different perspective, we look at vases, we consider them as static things and they're not. They were there to to give a scene and... The idea was that the reader or the person watching them would imagine them and, and allow them to kind of take off in their in their mind. And I think that's what you really help do. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. And, you know, there's lots of 
beautiful artwork and animation inspired by the ancient world. But yes, I'm, I'm pleased that we've been able to do something that is a creative project. And yet at the same time, we do work closely with the artifacts and encourage people to, yes, look at the artifacts in a new way, look at them in more detail. And I think there's something really valuable about that. Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, onto your book, The Idea of Marathon. I've read it and I found it really, really interesting. There was lots there. There's lots of content there. And there are two aspects to it that I think are worthy of noting. The second would actually come to you later on in this episode. But the first is the fact that you bring a lot of detail and you're able to, to manage that into a coherent and cogent narrative. And that's no mean feat. I'm never going to compare what I do with what you are doing. It's on a far, far smaller scale. But when I'm trying to put out content, sometimes there are these big unwieldy aspects or occasions in ancient history and you don't want to deliver them as that one big chunky thing you want to break them down and I've heard it used before the term I like is small moving parts and there are lots of these small moving parts and what I really really enjoyed about your book was that in the lead up to marathon you really do take these small moving parts examine them weigh them up and fit them together but you don't go down what I've often done you don't go down these sort of rabbit holes where you get stuck discussing something that's largely irrelevant to the wider picture. So I really, really enjoyed the way you struck that balance. The second part, as I said, we'll get to later, and that's exactly what Marathon meant after it had happened. Again, I think that people will be very, very interested and perhaps a bit astonished in parts as how the later generations and Greeks themselves looked at Marathon, weighed it up, understood it, and how it now exists and how the modern day we interpret it. So, um, but I am actually curious as to why the subject of why was it marathon was there something specific to marathon that drew you to it interesting yes well the battle of marathon for starters is part of the greco-persian wars and the persian wars are just really mm. interesting culturally uh, straight away and they happen at a really interesting time so i was drawn to the persian wars in that sense and then with marathon i, I really wanted to add a new perspective on the battle. Some histories of the mm. battle are quite light on the Persian perspective, for example. So I wanted yeah. to do a version that gives you the Persian perspective as well as the Greek perspective on it. And some mm. histories of it can sometimes have a slightly jingoistic element to it. Sometimes they have this mm. whole battle to save civilization vibe. And yeah. I really was quite keen to revisit the battle and to write a history of it that took a, a different approach from that. And certainly the build up to it is more interesting than we sometimes give it credit for. It's such a fluid time. You know, you have oh, yeah. this rise of, of Persia, but at the same time, the Greeks are alongside that happening. They are seeing it happen, but some of them are participating. Some of the people who fought for the Greeks at Marathon, had also fought for Persia on previous occasions. Mm. And then one of the senior generals for the Greeks, at, or for the Athenians at Marathon, he has two sons that we know for definite existed. Um, one of them later on would become a Greek general. The other one would become an honorary Persian and would live in Persian territory with his Persian family. Mm. And I wanted to show that this is a world in which that was possible at that period. And mm. and yes, as you've said, I also wanted yeah. to show that the battle is just part of the just part of the history of the battle. It has its it has its afterlife, which is something I 
wanted to explore and it's an absolutely wild ride yeah it is earlier on i mentioned all those details on the lead up to the to what became the battle of marathon and i appreciate that we haven't really got the time you could probably do an episode purely on those but could you give a kind of summary as to what the lead up causes and events were that led to marathon sure uh, so the persian empire had been expanding out of its base which is in southern iran uh, from around 550 bce so they are busy, like most empires, securing other people's territories and then essentially rinsing them for resources. And they are very successful and they expand in every direction. And in the West, they end up taking territories all around the Black Sea. Uh, they are defeating the Lydian Empire, which had territory in what we would call Western Turkey. And that includes Asia Minor, where the Eastern Greeks live. And some mainland Greeks send aid to the Eastern Greeks to try and help them. Um, they try and hmm. participate, but that does not go very well. Soon after, the Persians attack the Greek islands. That is unsuccessful. But by that stage, it's very clear that the Persians will be coming further west against the mainland at some point. Mainland Greece is not a united country at that time, um, as your listeners no. uh, may know. <laughs> or after. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's it's made up of of lots of different states, uh, often rival city states, and the Eastern Greeks, from their perspective, the ones living in what we call Western Turkey, uh, they were very unlikely to really settle into being part of the Persian Empire, whilst their Western neighbours are outside the empire, and there are some very worthwhile resources in mainland Greece, particularly mm. metals and things like this. Um, so in 490 BCE, the Persians launch an invasion across the Aegean and they bring their troops over in, in transport vessels, which is hugely ambitious. It's not clear yeah, if this is yeah. in intended to be uh, an actual full invasion of the whole country, whether this is a, a punitive mission against part of it, uh, whether this is just intended to secure a bit of territory and then expand from there. Uh, but either way, the Athenians and the, their Plataean neighbours, they just about decide that they will try and resist this invading army. And astonishingly, uh, they are successful and the Persians would not be back for another another 10 years. But having said hmm. that about the Greeks being a divided people at that period, when I say the Persians, again, it's worth noting that this is it's not simply a battle of Greeks against Persians at all. There are only the two Greek communities on the defending side. And what we normally refer to as the Persian army was also made up of different groups. Mm. Uh, so as well as the Persians, you have the Medes. Uh, their army, uh, the army is led by a Persian called Artaphernes and a Mede who is normally referred to as Datis the Mede. And with them, you also have Sakai from Central Asia. And there are other Greeks there as mm. well with the Persian side. And some of those are... Eastern Greeks who've essentially been pressed into service, much as the Sakai are pressed into service. Um, but others amongst them are actually Athenians. So years earlier, the Athenians had expelled their tyrant Hippias, oh, and yeah. he had left with his family and friends. And like most Greeks from that period, when they're exiled from their community, they go off to Persia. Hippias spends a good deal of his energy hassling the Persian great king Darius to, to invade. And the idea is essentially that Hippias will return with the Persian invasion and he will take over Athens and rule on Persia's behalf. 
Um, so to some extent, Marathon it has a sort of civil war element in a way. Hmm. Uh, it's the Athenians thrashing out what they want their future to look like. Do they want it to be the one that they have formed or will the old guard come in and reintroduce that kind of thinking, but within this new imperial context? It was entirely plausible that the Athenians might have said, look, we, we really won't win this battle. We might as well just get on with sorting out terms. Yeah. And that's not what happened. Yeah. And that's part of why this battle has inspired people so much over the years. You, you made a couple of points there, I think, that people might be surprised by, particularly in relation to Greeks fighting Greeks. It's worth noting that 10 or so years later at the Battle of Plataea, which is where the Persian army was defeated by a very large Greek force, Thebans were fighting on the side of the Persians. That's right. And the, and the other Greeks will never let them forget it. No, no, they never. They never let them. It's quite funny. I did a, a podcast on Thebes or did a couple episodes on Thebes. And it's something that just keeps coming up every time anyone falls out with Thebes and Thebes are trying to get back on, on the side. Someone will just pull that straight out. But so this this whole dynamic of having a tyrant in charge, the tyrant then getting kicked out, him then going and getting some resource and support from other Greek cities or wherever they could find it and then coming back in wasn't anything new. So we can see Marathon as this clash of East and West, which is very much simplifies it down to a, almost a an 80s kids cartoon good versus bad thing or all those smaller dynamics that are going on in that, one of which is re-establishment of a tyranny, re-establishment of a single ruling family in Athens versus the democracy that had had was at that time still developing and it was very young. And so that's probably an optic to throw over that perhaps people don't always think about or don't always consider. So thanks for that. Absolutely. We've got the, the Persian force. It's come over. It's gone to the island of Euboea. And it's sacked a city there. And they see Marathon as an ideal staging site to land. And they land a Marathon. And then there's the battle. Can we give an overview or can you can you talk about the battle and, and what we know about it? Sure. Although I should start by saying it is remarkably difficult to know very much about what went on yeah. in the battle itself. And, mm. I mean, it took place not very long before Greeks begin seriously developing history writing, lots of other genres. So we do know more about Marathon than we know about pretty much any battle that had happened before that. Mm. Um, but if anybody gives you a sort of Dungeons and Dragons style account in which you get these details <laughs> of what troops did in what order, I mean, they are basically pulling your leg. Nobody knows stuff like that. Yeah. And, and they shouldn't pretend that they do, really. It's mainly Herodotus, isn't it, that we have for the battle? Well, Herodotus is very important but you can bring in things from other directions. And Herodotus is so helpful, and so much of what we know about Herodotus is from him. But at the same time, by the time he writes it, people have already processed this idea of what happened at the battle, uh. and it's come into its own narrative. So what he's saying, mm. in terms of the description of the battle, there, there's an extent to which we, we probably shouldn't take it too literally. And so, you know, it's a case of trying to balance what you think um, works and what you think is probably an idealization and then you balance elements of what he's done with what other people have said and what images you get yeah and bring them together even what he says is extremely brief in terms of the battle itself mm. you know there is so much about the build-up so much about what happens afterwards yeah do you think then the the reason or the possible reason that Herodotus doesn't go into too much detail about the battle 
is because he acknowledges how important it was to Athens. He understands its its resonance. He doesn't want to get too involved in perhaps dissembling some of the myths about it. So it's almost a subject you can't touch. You can you're, all you're all you can really say is that Athens won, or rather the Greeks won, and it was fantastic, and the Persians were defeated. But you don't want to get into too much detail because if you do, then perhaps you might tell you might contradict uh, an accepted version of what happened or it might be seen in some way as speaking ill of the event so you just want to keep away from it just say yep we won and uh, there we go no i don't really feel like that's his his take on it okay. i think by the time he's talking to people he is adopting a lot of what people are by then saying and but he probably thinks some of that is in terms of the account of the battle are fair but I think fundamentally, he doesn't write generally very long battle accounts anyway. You know, that's not really his okay. focus. And he is very willing to say terrible things about the Athenians. You know, a lot of what reflects really <laughs> badly on them in relation to the battle uh, comes from Herodotus as well. So I don't think he's afraid of stirring things up a little bit. What What is it that we sort of do know? That the basics we can we can pass over at Marathon and say this the likelihood or a strong likelihood of this as the battle? Yes, good question, because there are things we can know, even while we accept the ambiguities. For one thing, it is absolutely definite that Marathon is a coastal plain and it's surrounded by mountains and it's on the east coast of Attica, which is the Athenians' territory. And what happens is that, as you described, the Persian fleet comes in from Euboea and they moor by Marathon and the Athenians and Plataeans have marched out to the coast to meet them. They're essentially doing that to try and stop mm. the Persian army from moving inland and moving down those mountain passways mm. and roads. The Athenians will have mustered pretty much anybody who could fight. They even freed male mm. slaves who were willing to fight in exchange for okay. their freedom. But once they all get there and they're on the plane, you then have plenty of hanging around for a few days. Mm. And okay. the fight doesn't happen immediately. The Athenians will have been essentially hoping that a delay will give them time for the Spartans to arrive and offer some backup. And mm. that never happens. Famously, a messenger did run from Athens to Sparta to try and raise the alarm, but the troops just don't make it in time. Somebody does make the first move. The Greeks tend to say that it was the Greeks who made the first move. But again, that's come something that could go either way. And then you have the business of the fighting itself. So again, we don't know exactly what happened. Um, but what we do know is that the Persians have a lot of archers. The Athenians, projectile-wise, they can be throwing rocks. Mm. Uh, but primarily, we're talking about hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Spears are the main weapon for both sides, although the Persians also have short swords. The Sakai have axes. Some of the Greeks will have had swords as well. Mm. And this is a really adrenaline fueled form of fighting, very intense. Uh, mm. But at some point, the Persian force does begin to give ground, and they end up breaking and that ends up with a lot of them fleeing into a marsh that's at Marathon and there is basically a dreadful business and uh, a quite a big slaughter in the marsh as the mm. Greeks uh, chase them into it and cut them down there. Uh, then you have a fight by the ships as people are trying to escape onto the ships to get away 
According to Herodotus, the Greek dramatist uh, Aeschylus, he fought in this battle and his brother was involved in that fight by the ships and uh, he's famously Mm. said to have uh, tried to grab one of the ships. He's going to throw a firebrand on it to set fire to it, uh, but he's killed when somebody chops his hand off with an axe and he falls back down. That's really drastic stuff. Mm. And then the fleet leave with whoever they've got and the Athenians realise that they've won, which is astonishing to everybody. Something that I'd like to check up on is what I've thought of as being Schrodinger's cavalry, because cavalry seems to be present at Marathon, but also not present. It's kind of reported on. And the importance of cavalry is because this is a plane and traditionally hoplite warfare or any sort of spear-based infantry warfare is very good on the front. But if you get round the back, round the sides with cavalry, it can be game over quite quickly. And the fact that the Persians aren't able to deploy their cavalry or make use of it has often been a bit of a head-scratchy moment for a lot of people. Is there anything that we know much about this, or is it just that it's it's a mystery? It really is one of the great mysteries of the battle, and I don't think we will ever have a satisfactory answer, to be honest. Mm. The ancient writers and ancient artists, they largely agree that the Persians brought a cavalry force with them. And again, that is really mm. a tremendous achievement uh, to bring yeah, to bring cavalry by sea. And one argument I've read is that the cavalry were brought, there wasn't many of them, and they were in fact camped at a nearby spring that wasn't with the main bulk of the Persian army because the horses need watering. And so they had to camp them the more or less the other side of, of opposite to where the Persians were camped by this by this spring. And so when the Greeks forced the battle, the cavalry didn't have time to form up. They didn't have the time to get onto the plane because accessing the plane from this particular spring area required them to go through quite a narrow path. So effectively, they missed their chance to get onto the plane. Yes, you're describing Peter Krentz's suggestion there. Oh, is that who it is? Oh, OK. Yeah, that's who it was. Yeah, he just, he he put that suggestion together a few years ago. And I think there's quite a lot to be said for it. It fills in the unsatisfying sense that people seem to agree that the cavalry was there, but they cavalry don't seem to have participated and so he found this mm. interesting suggestion of why that might have been um so yes i discussed that in some details about what uh, what works about that idea and what doesn't and he's really extending an earlier suggestion from the 19th century um, in which monroe had suggested um that perhaps what had happened was that the cavalry left that the army decided you know this isn't going to work so there was an idea to move off and attack somewhere else Uh and that the cavalry had perhaps been taken on board ship and that's when the greeks sprang into action and that was really um based off a suggestion uh, partly using cornelius nepos and uh, partly using an extract from an encyclopedia called the suda the idea of the split force it's quite attractive because it helps to explain why the cavalry don't seem to have participated in great numbers and yet why there is so many repeat references to them having been there. Hmm. But at the same time, we don't really know that that is what happened. The the, the texts are profoundly complicated. You know, they're they're very hard to interpret with a great deal of accuracy. So Monroe's suggestion is a good suggestion, but it's flawed. And Peter Krentz's follow-up suggestion is a good suggestion, but it's flawed. Um, But both of these help to maybe create a sense of, of... why there is this yes this schrodinger's cavalry who are who are there and yet not there but fundamentally again we don't know how many of them had been brought over so it could be that we are mistaken in 
imagining large numbers and following the authors who mentioned large numbers of cavalry when in fact perhaps they were only supposed to be small numbers so they didn't make too much difference um, but again if Krentz is right and there were smallish numbers and they were not yet in play by the time the battle kicked off then then that could be an explanation. Fundamentally uh, it's pretty clear that the Athenians were very fortunate that there weren't as many cavalry fighting as there might have been but why that is uh, is going to have to remain unclear. Do we know what sort of numbers of army sizes we're talking about here roughly? We don't. In terms of the Greeks the tradition is that there are 9,000 Athenians and 1,000 Plataeans. And that's a number that you see repeated quite often, both in antiquity and mm. afterwards. And I think that probably did make up the core of the uh, hoplite troops. But you've got mm. to make it higher than that, because I think we we should also be including other people who are fighting. And mm. estimates range from yeah, sort of 15,000 to maybe above 20,000 Greeks fighting. For the Persians, some estimates range from sort of 12 to 15,000 troops plus large numbers of support up to, again, sort of more like 25,000 troops. Uh, Some would go up Mm. to even 100,000 if you include all of the support. And I think, you know, that the sheer range of the difference in those figures tells you just how, how little certainty there is about it. There is a very strong tradition that the Greeks were outnumbered. And I think that tradition is so strong that we shouldn't really, I don't think there's any need to question that. But the extent to which they were outnumbered is certainly unclear. Prior to recording this with you, I put out a statement that I'd be talking to uh, to yourself about Marathon. I had some really good questions come back, which I hope to be able to address in the course of this episode. And one of them asked about the composition of the army that Athens presented at Marathon. Now, was this composed largely of the richer classes, the wealthier classes who were able to afford the hoplite kit and how important that class then was politically? Because at this time, you've got the democracy forming, you've got the democracy uh, getting its its feet under the table. From what you have said just earlier, this was actually not just hoplites fighting. It wasn't just this wealthy class fighting. It was actually a number of the levels, probably all levels of the Athenian society. Yes, absolutely. And I would also like to say thank you to those people who sent questions. You know, it's great to hear from people and and great to hear what people Mm. are interested in. I would describe this as a victory for all levels of Athenian society. It's really clear that the Athenians wanted any man to fight who realistically could. And this is not yet the age of the exclusive hoplite phalanx. And that means that Mm. you have these non-hoplites there and they are the, the poor and the freed slaves. And they are providing support, but they're also using lighter weaponry. They're fighting in less armor, but they are still contributing. They'll be the ones using projectiles. Mm. And these are not wealthy, not even close, but they make their contribution as well. So I think it's fair to say Mm. that the hoplite class do benefit from their contribution at Marathon. But I think it's more complicated than that because the others benefit as well. Yeah. As the phalanx becomes more and more exclusive to the hoplite, it becomes more plausible to suggest that Marathon was a hoplite victory. And the rhetoric that builds up around that does support traditional social hierarchy. And in that sense, Marathon could be used to promote social conservatism, if you like. But to the counter to Mm. that is that it's a victory for those other people as well. 
So the sons mm. of those slaves, they are more, more than likely citizens by the time that this discussion is taking place. Sometimes Marathon is spoken of as if it's that thing we all did together, all of us as a community. Mm. But other times it's spoken about as that thing that those people did within our community. Mm. And this is really the flexibility that comes as a product of this idea of Marathon and how a battle is co-opted more or less consciously for different ideological purposes. Um, It's also worth mentioning that of the people who are so prominent in society that we know their names as as participants of the battle, a huge number of them come a terrible cropper not long after the battle. Um, Miltiades, for example, Mm. is prosecuted uh, very shortly after Marathon, and dies. He's not executed, but he uh, he dies before the fine from his case is paid. And then you get an absolute wave of ostracisms that follow. Uh, so many of the yeah. elite community who are involved in that battle, I mean, they're actually cast out by their community uh, only a short time later. Um, so on the one hand, there is this sense that the elite are able to demonstrate their usefulness to society. Um, but society is not just saying, great, thanks very much, you can be in charge of everything from now on. This is absolutely not what happens. You have Marathon as vindication of democracy, and yet this democracy doesn't fare well for people afterwards who succeeded at Marathon. If this had been the elite or the, the wealthier families and the more prominent members of, say, an oligarchy or any kind of sort of narrow government, being at Marathon, you're now famous, you're untouchable, whereas the democracy kind of exposes those who are successful at Marathon. It doesn't give them a a free pass in society. That's right. There's a very intense feeling of accountability in some, as you might call it, within this democracy. So people who you might Mm. think would be lionised for the rest of their lives are absolutely not. And that's true of uh, some of the other key figures as well. And this is an int- this is part of its interesting history. For some people, for some writers and artists, Marathon becomes absolutely a celebration of democracy, what is possible for a democracy to achieve. For other writers, particularly Plato, Marathon is an example of what's wrong with democracy mm. and how fickle it is. And people who achieve something very important for the community are are turned on straight away. And he would say, yeah, Marathon is, is a fine example of how um, unreliable doc- democracy is. Just a couple of questions before we move on to the, the after of the battle and, and how what your book really, really gets into detail on. Did the Persians, after they were got defeated, reconsider their tactics or in any way think we need to approach the hoplites in a different way? They don't seem to strategically change how they are fighting on the battlefield. But it is worth noting that when they attack Greece again, they don't come across the Aegean. They use the land route. Mm. And I think that, I mean, that has to be related. I think that sense of uh, how tricky it was to do that operation um, was, was taken note of. And they said, I mean, funnily enough, of course, they came across the Aegean, I would say, largely because, well, A, they wanted to attack the islands, but also they'd had a terrible business in the north of the far north of the Aegean, only a little while earlier, in which a fleet of theirs got got absolutely trashed in a storm. So they might have been thinking, mm. let's try and avoid that bit of the coast because that is bad news. So okay. we'll go further down. However, you know, it has its own problems. So so they are thinking yeah. about it. It doesn't fundamentally seem to change how they 
um, reactor hoplites as such, no. Now, what I want to get stuck into with you is what happens after Marathon. So the Greeks have been successful, and by that I mean the Athenians and the Plataeans. They've resisted and the Persians have now gone. How does the Greeks, how do the Athenians start making sense of what they've done? I mean this in the context as well as, as later invasion, because obviously the Persians do come back. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, how these things relate to each other. I would say it really depends on what kind of Greek you are. Hmm. With the exception of the Athenians who are around Hippias, uh, abroad, that is, the, the Athenians hmm. are just delighted about Marathon, obviously. And yeah. they are delighted about all of the Greek victories in the Greco-Persian Wars but especially Marathon, because it's almost exclusively an Athenian victory. Mm. Uh, so we very soon begin to hear this rhetoric about how Athens saved all of Greece, not just Athens. And mm. as we were saying before, this element of, of class creeps in. So um, it begins to be the case that some Athenians are more enthusiastic about Marathon than some of the others, precisely because Marathon becomes more and more associated with um, the upper classes, where it was harder to deny that the poor have taken a major part in Salamis, for example, because um, Salamis yeah. was um, a naval battle. Uh, the playwright Aristophanes, for example, he's a real traditionalist in some ways. And sometimes he makes a big thing about Marathon as that thing all of us did in the old days, a community event for everyone of that generation. Um, but on the other hand, he mentions Marathon a lot more than he mentions Salamis. And that's, I think, to do with some of this class bias, if you like. Sorry, just to elaborate on when we talk about Salamis, when we're talking about a naval battle, what we're talking about there and the relevance to the lower classes is they were the rowers. And so Salamis can be seen as a victory for that's based more on the, a lower class contribution because they are the Thetes, I believe it's the Thetes, who are the rowers at the time. And they're the ones who obviously make the difference on the day with their skill and hard work. That's right. That's right. So the naval warfare is is always more associated with the poorer classes, especially once you're into the period in which land warfare becomes more exclusively about the hoplite. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, you know, if it wasn't for Marathon, perhaps the other battles of the Persian Wars wouldn't have taken place. Um, yeah. They certainly wouldn't have happened in the same way. That's probably the, more, the most effective way to think about that. Mm. So Marathon has this really special status as the first round on the mainland. In, in a way, it's the one that makes the others seem possible. How does Athens start representing what Marathon meant to it in terms of its sort of the art and architecture? Yes, its influence on art is absolutely colossal. Understandably, it has set the imagination of the Athenians alight. And so we see its influence in pottery. Uh, we see a tremendous amount of monument building and temple building and, and the friezes which decorate those reflect the events of Marathon one way or another. Mm. Uh, but perhaps one of the most intriguing uh, visual impacts is the creation of the Marathon painting in the painted stoa. Could you go into what this painting was, where it was and what it looked like and basically everything you can say about the painting? Because I'm absolutely fascinated by it. Sure, sure. I mean, it's just a wonderful thing, really. Because Miltiades was prosecuted not long after Marathon, his family go on a big campaign of reputation management, especially his son, Kimon. And part of that involves the creation of a huge public building in central Athens. And as part of the decoration of that building, it's a stoa, which means a big rectangular building 
with the back wall, side walls, and then columns down the front, and you can just hang out in it and enjoy uh, a bit of shade. As well as the structure, you also have three paintings. This gives you a painting of Theseus helping the Athenians to defend Athens from the Amazons. You have a picture of the aftermath of the Trojan War and the Greek leaders surrounding the defeated Trojan princesses. And then the main feature is a 16-metre-wide painting of the Battle of Marathon. Wow. And it's painted by absolutely the leading painters of the day. And it has all kinds of stuff going on. So you have a depiction of the battle itself. It has some people who are identifiable in it, not just as generic Athenians, but as known figures. So some of the key figures are shown in it by identifiably. So you have figures such as Callimachus and Miltiades. Uh, you also have gods and heroes there, and they are shown participating mm. in the battle. Some of them are rising up out of the earth to fight, uh, but some of them are surrounding the battle and watching it. There's this idea of divine interest in human actions, of course. So, of course, they're interested in Marathon. And they are shown... It's really in three phases. So you have part of it shows the fight. Uh, then you have a section that shows the flight to the marsh, which is one of those things that helps give you a sense of what Herodotus was talking about. He mentions this business mm. about the marsh, and here it is cropping up in a description of the painting. And then you have a section with the ships. And all of the Athenians knew this painting. And if you were a visitor to mm. Athens, you would know that painting. And it became a huge part about how people thought about the battle, how they thought about what had happened. And, and to put that into context, we know so much about it because it was described by the writer Pausanias. And he saw it in Athens over 500 years after it was painted. Yeah. In the book, I thread through history to some extent, the history of the painting and its role in Athenian life. And it was actually quite moving when I came to the section uh, where I write about the end of it. Uh, that happens around the time as the end of the Olympic Games. And a Roman official has the paintings removed and nobody knows what happens to them after that. But by that time, they had been in Athens for almost 900 years. So you can really get a sense of how the battle and that particular artistic representation of the battle so influence society. I mean, that's almost a thousand years of people interacting with that painting and understanding the battle through that depiction of it. It's something you can't really get your head around in terms of timelines. I mean, I did a, a brief back of a cigarette packet, a sort of numbers. And so by, you mentioned by the time Pausanias has visited and is, is viewing it, it's kind of five, six hundred years after it had been painted. And to go back from where we are now, you're looking at the Renaissance. Yes. You're looking at yeah. 50 years before um, Michelangelo's born. It's almost 100 years before uh, the Mona Lisa's painted. Uh, so many people have visited, so many people knew it. So it must have been a huge sort of cultural engine in, in reinforcing a particular viewpoint of Marathon to so many different people. Absolutely. It's really fascinating in that sense. It, I think, like you said, the timeline helps you reorientate your mind around what it means when we talk about something like ancient Greece. You know, the temptation can always mm. be to homogenize it. And there are things which are consistent through that culture over a long time. But we're talking about a really enormous period. And in the same way, you're right, when yeah. you compare it to modern cultures and how the time frame relates to things in the past, it is useful to take that mindset back to antiquity and think, yeah, these things aren't homogenous. 
you can be in ancient Greece, but looking back at something that happened a long time ago. And yeah. that, that sense of difference is the same for them as it is for us. We do tend to think of antiquity, ancient history as this one block. It's one block of time. So someone walking around in classical Athens is basically the same as someone walking around in Imperial Rome. And you don't always think of all of the time between those two points, all of the changes, all the cultural changes, the things that didn't exist, the things that do exist. People two or three thousand years ahead of us wouldn't go back and say, well, actually, these guys, you know, running around in uh, Elizabethan England were the same that were running around um, accessing social media. You know, we would feel yes. we, we would be challenging that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. This is what's wonderful. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because if we took that same leap ourselves, there are genuinely things that we would have in common. We would have shared reference points, things yeah. we would understand. But there's also so much difference and so much change. And I love about ancient history in particular, but also any history, really. It's this push and pull all the time of the familiar and the unfamiliar. And thinking about these enormous time frames can really help give you that sense that you, yeah, you can be in ancient Greece, but at the same time, looking back on what to you is ancient history, what to you is something from so long ago, it makes your mind wobble. I'm just going to use something you said about the uh, cultural reference point there, the dog in the painting. Can you please explain about the dog Ah, in the painting? Yeah, this is so lovely. This is so lovely. And it's one of those things that could have been lost to history very easily. But by the time you're in the second century CE, second century AD, you have a guy called Elian, and he is a a freed slave. So this is someone who lives as a slave for most of his life, but he is then highly educated, and then he's freed. And he begins a great career as a writer. And one of the things he writes is a book called On the Nature of Animals. And his big thing is uh, the idea of, of, you know, is there divine providence in the life of animals and the animal kingdom? And so he writes all these wonderful stories about different animals. And one of the things he does to demonstrate to us all that dogs have an excellent nature and how great dogs are is to say, look, we can see that dogs are truly excellent because somebody included a dog in the marathon painting at Athens. And that <laughs> dog was such a good dog. It fought so well in the battle and was so helpful that the dog got its reward by being included amongst the heroes in this painting. Uh, so the dog at Marathon proves that dogs have, have good character. And here, this one has been celebrated like all of these great heroes. I'd love to have known what type yeah. of dog. What type of dog? Yeah. yeah. What type of dog? I mean, I, it's something you can't answer. Would it have been a large dog or would it have, you know, could it have been a lap dog? That would have been quite funny. Unlikely. I love the idea of it being a lap dog. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to come down on what we would call a medium-sized dog, though that's slightly unsatisfactory yeah. sitting on the fence. But yeah. I say that because it's almost <laughs> certainly going to have been a hunting dog. Yeah. And yeah. hunting dogs, I was so, you know, they're, they, they're good. It would be good company, but it would also be a practical thing to have there. You also got to get it there as well, so... Yeah, you've got to have a dog that's happy to walk a long distance. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't be my dog because my dog, bless him, he wouldn't, you know, to the park. And then he just looks at you and goes, done now. So, no, definitely would have been him. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I mean, it's wonderful in the sense of it it gives you that human interaction with animals that we can really appreciate. Um, But at the same time, it also is a great demonstration of, of, again, how marathon can be used to prove something that you want to say. You know, if you want to make a point, Mm. it becomes harder to refute it 
if you say it in relation to marathon, because marathon is so powerful for people and it has so much meaning for them that if you say, well, a dog participated in marathon, that makes it so much more powerful than just saying dogs can be very helpful, you know. Moving from dogs then, unfortunately, in the, the era of Macedon, which obviously follows classical Athens, how was marathon understood and considered? Yes, this becomes really interesting. So there's no point after the battle in which people aren't talking about marathon it it continues to crop up and so much so that it becomes a key part of education because a big part of education in Athens is learning to give speeches and how you persuade people and so boys learn in school how you write speeches how you deliver them and they learn how to refer to marathon either to inspire people or caution them or whatever you want and the speeches carried out in that period, some of them become such a model of how to give a good speech that they are protected and rewritten again and again and again as examples so that they carry on across the millennia. And that's how we have a lot of speeches from that period. So we actually get to see Ah. several examples. Once you see Macedon begin to threaten the Greek states, Marathon becomes more and more important as an example, an inspiration normally for resisting this kind of pressure. Ah, so okay. there, becomes an, there becomes this idea that the Macedonians are the new Persians, that this is the threat for the mm. new generation. You know, our, our, our previous generations fought off the Persians. We must now do the same thing against the Macedonians. In some mm. speeches, you have speech makers saying, you know, come on, we need the spirit of ma- marathon. We need to defend ourselves. But you also have people saying, not every battle will be like Marathon. You know, if we do this, uh, we're going to get wiped out. So Marathon becomes a kind of benchmark by which people measure things, but it is different depending on what point you want to make. And it's fascinating that it can be used for both sides. As far as the Macedonians are concerned, they are busy trying to represent themselves from the different perspective. They want to show themselves Mm. as Greek and Macedon, attacking Persia as revenge for the Persian wars and the invasion of Greece. So this stands in direct contrast to what the Athenians are saying about it. And the Athenians absolutely reject this idea that the that the Macedonians are the new Athenians. They're saying, you're not the new Athenians. We're still the Athenians and you are in the role of the Persians. So who identifies with whom in the battle is, is, is a really live point. And there's something going on there, of course, which is that over time, different people associate themselves with the battle. To start with, it's just, well, you know, that Mm. was my father's generation. I want to do as well as my father. But as time goes on, different people want to identify themselves with the Athenian players in in that game. And that becomes very, very flexible. So after a while, it stops being just about Athenian versus Persia. It stops even necessarily being about... Greek versus Persia, uh, as as Greek education moves east, ironically with the uh, Macedonian advance east, Greek culture spreads with it. And so the traditions of Marathon spread with it. So sooner or later, you have writers and they are they are Syrians, uh, they are Italians, they're from all over the Greco-Roman world. They will use Marathon or the Greco-Persian Wars in general as, as talking points, cornerstones for their education, for talking about any conflict. You could use it really, really, it's a very flexible symbol. You could use it to represent any people in pretty much any conflict. 
So how does Marathon get referred and referenced and used in later periods? Yes, and again, part of what's fascinating about Marathon is it, it never really drops off. It has It's more important in some periods than other, but there is never a point at which it's a forgotten battle. So right through the Byzantine Empire, it's a key part of their education. So it's always kept live in that point. By the time you're into the 11th century, so the period of the Norman conquest for Britain, you have Afghan poets, particularly Ansuri, writing in Persian, and and they're writing about Miltiades and Metiochus, his son, you know. So it's interesting how this persists. And then once the Byzantine age is coming to a close, the Renaissance is happening in in Europe. And so their Greek Mm. history, Greek biography, the orators, they're getting a massive boost as well. So that, again, you know, means that Marathon retains this core part within education, this core part within culture. So it doesn't really have a time uh, to drop off. It, It has a persistence throughout that period. It would be fair to say it has a surge, I suppose, Uh, The Napoleonic Wars do give it a surge towards the end of the 18th into the 19th century. People are very excited about classical history in that period. And to some extent, they even interpret the world through a classical lens. And they're drawn to compare themselves with uh, the classical heroes that they have grown up with. And because people are using predominantly Greek and Roman sources, they, they tend to think about the Greeks as the good guys. So whatever side people are on they tend to associate themselves with the Greeks. And that's whether they are French, British, Portuguese, Spanish. They tend to associate associate themselves with the Greeks in the Greco-Persian Wars. Marathon crops up a lot in that. Again, there's this idea of fighting freedom's cause. There's the democratic element. Uh, Never mind that the Athenians were very keen to conquer anything they could get their hands on. Uh, The idea is of them as, you know, a, a plucky few fighting against uh, an oppressor. And and this really comes to a head uh, with the Waterloo campaign. Just when people think that the Napoleonic Wars is over, but Napoleon Bonaparte escapes, rallies the troops, the whole thing kicks off again. And there is a really credible risk of Britain being defeated at that point. People are looking very seriously down the barrel of French occupation, Uh, There is a lot of concern about what people see as the tyranny of the Emperor Napoleon and all what will be brought by that. Britain is a naval power. It's a form of democracy. So it's not surprising that comparison between Marathon and Waterloo crops up uh, when there is, in both cases, this determination to resist invasion by an imperial power. Uh, And of course, what's funny is that Britain fights as part of an alliance at Waterloo. So in some ways, the Battle of Plataea might have fitted better as a comparison. But Marathon Mm. is the battle that has this hold on the imagination. So it's Marathon that people turn to to write and to create art. There is a better fit for a war that happens not much later on, which is the Greek War of Independence. That's independence from the Ottoman Empire. And the leaders of the Greeks very consciously encourage association between the modern struggle and the ancient struggle. And this becomes an enormous source of inspiration to the Greeks who were involved. But of course, it's also an effective way of galvanising international support amongst other European nations. And that becomes a huge part of getting people on board, getting the European nations on board with supporting the Greeks against the Ottomans. 
that's wonderfully answered and you've taken us across a great range of times and different peoples and different cultures and it does go to show just how much one instance thousands of years ago can still be reclaimed and re-understood and reinterpreted by following cultures and, and time periods so thanks thanks again for that and i know that's something your book really leans heavily on thank you is there anything else you want to add to on on anything we've we've spoken about i suppose two things briefly one of the things i'm quite pleased about with the book is i have a chapter about surviving a battle you know we talk a lot about the glamorous parts of battles but sometimes they're a really dreadful business so there's also a chapter on wounds medical treatments and how armies deal with the wounded and the dead so it's pretty grisly mm. but at the same time i think really intriguing mm. uh, secondly something else i might like to add just briefly is that i've spoken quite a lot about the role of marathon in education throughout antiquity and in later eras and there's some material in the book about marathon in youth culture in the 20th and 21st centuries and i hope people might enjoy that um there is um sections particularly about young people's novels graphic novels and films for example one last question then what misconceptions do we have about marathon and what if any did the greeks have Ah, interesting. Well, in the modern age, I would think one misconception would be thinking that Miltiades was in charge. It was actually Callimachus who was in charge of the Greek army. Miltiades plays a really big part in the campaign, but he is actually not the senior general. The significance of this lies in the lengths that Miltiades' family went to, particularly Cimon, to resurrect Miltiades' image after his mm. death in difficult circumstances. In much of the book, I've told it as a family story, how Miltiades is involved in the build-up and how his children then work to shape the image of the battle in order to protect themselves from a very volatile political climate. Another misconception we tend to have is that the battle was democracy versus empire. That's often how it's framed, uh, but it really twists the comparison in a sense. It's a battle of democracy versus monarchy. Both sides are happy to be imperial powers, but neither side wants to be subject to somebody else's empire. So the attitude to empire, if anything, is something that both sides have in common. So we might think of it that way, but we should really step away from it. They are both communities who are mm. pro-empire. One happens to be run as a democracy. The other happens to be run as a monarchy. Uh, I suppose another key misconception is to do with the running. Running. <laughs> of course, the modern word marathon, Yeah, that comes from the Battle of Marathon. And that's a wonderful thing. Mm. And again, that's helped it retain a modern relevance that other battles would long for in terms of its cultural impact. And often people want to write things explaining where the word marathon comes from. And that means they retell the battle. And again, that gives it a, a, a cultural longevity. But this idea we have in the modern age that a runner went from Athens to Sparta, on to Marathon, and then back to Athens where they died. That's a misconception. Particularly the run yeah. from Marathon to Athens has become very famous. It is a much more wonderful and messy story than that. And I've uh, <laughs> charted the history of the Marathon run in the book. Um, but in brief, the version that stitches it all together and has the same person going off from Athens down to Sparta back and all of that that really 
comes from Robert Browning in the late 19th century. So it is interesting as its own tradition amongst the Roman Greeks. That is, the running is really important. But the version that is often told in the modern world, yes, it's a sort of collage of lots of bits shoved together. Quite interestingly, running rather than fighting tends to be the key element that is now told in children's novels about the battle. And I think that's because our attitude to violence has changed a little bit more. So we want to Mm. say less to children about how they should fight and die for their country. And we tend to want to say more about how you should do your best and struggle hard. And running works better for that than perhaps battles. But yes, there is running involved in the marathon. um, But the way it's commonly understood is is a bit of a fudge, I would say. I think the longest running event at the Olympics, the and I say the ancient Olympics, was just under five kilometres or thereabouts, because, of course, it was just up and down the track. There wasn't a long run. And from what I remember, it was very, the marathon run was very much used to sell the new Olympics when they were, I think, 1896 is when it all starts again. That's right. It comes from the modern Olympics. And it was somebody with a classical knowledge who said to the originator of the new Olympics, I've got this great idea. Why don't you do a run of this sort? And the the New Olympics is trying to capture the spirit of ancient Greece. So the idea of something mm. that uh, relates to a famous Greek event in that way is is immediately regarded as a, as a really good idea. And, and yeah, you're right. That's how it's developed. It's not it's not an ancient sporting event. Hence the uh, the name from the battle rather than uh, anything else. And I think that's a wonderful element of the of the story of the battle. Don't get me wrong. It's just that we we mm. have it all over the place in terms of modern imaginations. As for ancient misconceptions, uh, the first one, well, there was a very angry writer called Theopompus. He said that the Battle of Marathon was no big deal and the Athenians just lied about it to make themselves look (laughs) So possibly everybody in antiquity who thought it was important, maybe all of them had a misconception about the whole business. Uh, Theopompus certainly thought so. I mean, they, they thought it was important, but they would never have dreamed that it would have retained cultural significance for two and a half thousand years and more. You know, this battle is known in countries that the ancient Greeks didn't know existed. It has been written about in novels and films and celebrated in societies that the ancient Greeks just wouldn't have dreamed of. Uh, They thought the battle was significant, but they couldn't possibly have conceived of just how significant it would have been culturally for all of that time afterwards. I do think they would have been pleased, though, or or at least most of them. Perhaps not Theopompus, but everyone else, yeah. Everyone else. It's been a very, very interesting episode. Really, really interesting speaking to you. And thanks again for your book, The Idea of Marathon. Where can people find you on social media if they want to get in touch, talk about anything we've discussed or just generally? Oh, thanks. Yes, I'd love to hear from people. My Twitter handle is at Sonia Nevin, and that's S-O-N-Y-A-N-E-V-I-N. And they can also find the Panoply website. That's at www.panoply, which is P-A-N-O-P-L-Y dot org dot U-K. And the website also has a, a blog and a Facebook page, and people are more than welcome to get in touch with me through any of those avenues. I'll make sure that I put all of the links that you've just mentioned up on my blog with some other notes for this episode. So again, if you're not sure and you can't find exactly where Dr. Nevin is, just remember, go to ancientblogger.com. Remember also my Twitter handle at ancientblogger or at Hound Ancient for the podcast. Between all of those, 
you'll be able to find Dr. Nevin, I'm sure. Thanks very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a great chat. Really interested to hear what everyone's feedback is and the questions that might come from this. Until next time, keep safe and stay well. Thanks again. Bye-bye.